Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The business of making microchips is vast. It underpins the entire global economy. No other industry has the same mix of complexity, brutal capital intensity, and hard science. And no other industry is as potentially explosive. You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Rachna Shanbog, finance editor at The Economist. And also on today's show, Buy American orders President Joe Biden, but will Americans actually benefit? If you, the government, are bidding on on one thing, you are essentially pulling away resources from elsewhere in the economy. And why do rich countries struggle to tackle big problems? Economist Mariana Matsukato makes the case for a modern moonshot. Without that, this is just going to be a top-down process, which at best catalyzes some investment, but doesn't actually also get people to believe again in what government is for and what we can solve together when we put our minds to it. But first, earlier this month, Honda, a Japanese car maker, had to temporarily shut its factory in Swindon, a town in southern England. Not because of Brexit or COVID-19, the reason was a shortage of microchips. Around the world, car production lines ground to a halt. The German economy minister, Peter Altmaier, wrote to his counterpart in Taiwan, pleading for help in easing the shortfall. Like just about everything else these days, cars cannot run without computers. No wonder, then, that chip-making is enjoying a golden age. But as the technology evolves, the vast industry behind it is itself being redesigned, with global repercussions. I think chip making has become the foundational industry for the global economy. Tim Cross is The Economist's technology editor. These are the most sophisticated devices that human beings make. Each one is a sort of electronic circuit with billions of different components that's the size roughly of your your thumbnail. You can get a sense of the size of the industry just by looking at, at some of the numbers. Annual semiconductor sales are somewhere in the region of maybe half a trillion dollars. And I think this boom is coming at a time where the industry is being you know, shaken up. America's losing its lead in cutting edge manufacturing. Uh, China is, is uh, even keener on self-sufficiency than it was, thanks to um, American sanctions. And this long running trend of, of concentration is just carrying on. You know, the industry is becoming more and more concentrated in East Asia. And why is chip making booming now? It's Booming now, and it's been booming for a while, if that makes sense. The coronavirus pandemic has been a a, a big rush in in demand for all kinds of chip-powered gizmos. So that's the sort of short-term thing. And then the the, the long-term trend is that, you know, the information revolution, whatever you want to call it, has been running for for half a century at this point. And with each passing year, the products it's built on get 
more complicated and harder to produce. So you've got this this sort of booming market for applications. And I think some of the, the chip making companies seem you know convinced that this is going to, to continue because we've seen this big wave of deal making. NVIDIA, which is it makes gaming and, and AI chips, they are trying to buy ARM, which is a British chip designer for $40 billion. And then AMD, which makes general purpose chips, is spending $35 billion on a company called Xilinx, which makes chips that you can you can sort of change in the field. At the production side of things as well, you've seen these huge surges in, in capital spending. So Samsung, which is one of the world's leading chip manufacturers, they said they were going to spend well over $100 billion over the next 10 years. And then just the other day, on January the 14th, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, which TSMC, which is the world's sort of biggest contract chip maker, they said they'd raise their capital spending for next year from 17 billion to maybe 28 billion in anticipation of continuing strong demand. The industry itself is split into design and production. So let's start with design. Tell us about how that process is changing. So the way it used to work for, for maybe 20 years or so is that most companies that wanted to put a chip in something would just buy that chip off the shelf. What you're seeing now is that's starting to change. And I guess the example that, that most people maybe are familiar with will be Apple. Late last year, they said they were actually dropping Intel's chips from their desktops and laptops, and they were going to put their own in-house designs in. And these are designs derived from the chips that power their iPhones, which they also designed in-house. So Amazon, which runs Amazon Web Services, the biggest cloud computing company there is and and hosts any number of of other businesses. Back in the day, they were a huge buyer of these these sort of off-the-shelf chips. In the last few years, again, they've started designing things in-house. So they've now got their own Graviton chips. You've seen companies like Google, Baidu, Alibaba following suit. There's rumors actually that Microsoft, which is the third big Western cloud computing company, is about to do the same thing. And then away from the sort of giant guys, you've got this whole raft of startups. So there's a company called Graphcore in the UK who designed AI chips, and their last valuation was about $2.7 billion. We've just had Qualcomm, best known for, for making chips that go in smartphones. They bought another startup called Nuvia. The sort of economics have changed. You know, designing chips is hard, but if you're, if you're enormous, you can afford to take the hit. And then there's a sort of historic trend pushing it as well. So for 50 years, the industry marched along to Moore's Law, which is this, this idea that every two years, the number of components you can cram into a chip of a given size doubles. That was a huge source of performance increase. And people have been saying for decades, well, surely this can't go on forever. And guess what? No, it can't. And it's, it's starting to slow down now. And so the returns to sort of clever design, as it were, are higher than they've ever been. So designing chips in-house is more attractive than ever. Tell us what's happening at the other end of the process, production. Well, so this is really interesting. So you've got this sort of flowering at one end, and then at the other end, you've got this massive concentration. The smaller you make these components, the harder it is to make them smaller again. And so you've got this thing that people jokingly call more second law, which says the cost of a chip factory doubles every four years. Around the turn of the millennium, you could build a cutting-edge chip factory for maybe a billion dollars. And then TSMC, a few months ago, they just finished their latest cutting edge factory. That cost them $20 billion. You know, those those enormous costs, the flip side of those is that back in 2000, there were maybe two dozen companies that could afford the really high tech factories. And nowadays there are three or maybe even arguably only two of them left. Now, of the big chip makers, most people are perhaps most likely to have heard of Intel, the world's biggest chip maker by revenue. But it's been struggling. Earlier this month, it announced it was replacing its boss, Bob Swan. What's going on there, Tim? And what does it mean for the competition? They're unusual in that they do design their own chips and they do manufacture them themselves. So they face problems on on two fronts. Like we said earlier, a lot of their big customers, you know, people like Amazon and Google, 
you know, they now have their own hardware, which to some extent displaces stuff they would have otherwise bought from Intel. And their secret source, the advantage they always had, that they were better than anybody else at manufacturing, it doesn't really really apply anymore. And this is why a lot of people are saying, well, the number of cutting edge manufacturers now isn't three, it's it's down at two, Samsung and TSMC. And this concentration is sort of starting to, to worry some people. So the Semiconductor Industry Association, which is a, an American trade body, they reckon that about 80% of, of the world's chip making capacities now in Asia and round about half of all the, the sort of leading edge stuff is there too. Where does China stand in all this, Tim? American tech restrictions now affect at least 60 firms, including many involved in chips. What does all this mean for China's place in chip making? It's interesting. I think what's what's happened is that politicians were very interested in chip making and semiconductors in the, the sort of 60s, 70s and 80s, because it was the industry of the future. And then they kind of forgot about it in the 90s and 2000s. And now it's right back on the agenda again. You know, China has been trying to catch up because it sees this as a, as a sort of foundational industry that it wants to be a, a leader in. And America's been getting quite nervous about that. So they've put all these sanctions in and we're starting to see those bite now. So in the last quarter, TSMC sales to Chinese clients fell by almost three quarters. And that, you know, even though they're a Taiwanese company, TSMC, they use American technology in their in their factories. So they're they're affected by these sanctions and are really struggling to serve any of their Chinese clients. And then from China's end, this highlighted the original point of their policy, which is that these things are really important. And it seems to have made them even keener to become self-sufficient, if that's possible. What do these big shifts in the industry mean for companies that rely on chips for their products and ultimately for consumers? I think that's one of the things that COVID has done. It's really focused people's attention on this idea that efficiency in supply chains often means fragility. And Taiwan, where TSMC is based, you know, they have a lot of earthquakes there and it's unclear what's going to happen next time they have a, a really big one. But at the same time, China thinks of Taiwan as a rogue province that it would like to, to retake at some point. And even as we're recording this now, you know, we've, we've had news of Chinese military jets entering Taiwanese airspace. And then, you know, if you look at TSMC's competitor, Samsung, they're based in South Korea. And South Korea technically is still at war with North Korea. It's not certain that anything will happen with either China or North Korea, but the probability is not zero either. And if it were to happen, there'd be enormous repercussions. If you want a cutting edge chip, you sort of have nowhere else to go. If you just run these historic trends forward and the costs of factories keep going up and up and up, you know, are we at some point going to be in a world where there's only one company in the world that can afford to make cutting edge chips? And if you look at these guys' clients list, it's basically a who's who of some of the world's biggest companies. They've really become these sort of keystones in the arch of the global economy. Tim Cross, thank you very much. Thanks, Rachina. Faced with this hyper-concentration of chip-making, many governments are keen to get in on the action, whatever the cost. China has earmarked around $100 billion to subsidise domestic production. In December, EU countries agreed to spend tens of billions of euros in stimulus cash to create their own advanced factories by the mid-2020s. America has given out handouts to TSMC in return for a factory in Arizona. Samsung may expand the one it runs in Texas. Another package of incentives is awaiting funding from Congress. America can't sit on the sidelines in the race for the future. Our competitors aren't waiting. In America, chip-making is a nexus in a broader, bipartisan push to boost domestic industry. American manufacturing was the arsenal of democracy in World War II, and it must be part of the engine of American prosperity now. 
On Monday, January the 25th, President Biden signed another executive order, attempting to deliver on a key campaign promise. That means we're going to use taxpayers' money to rebuild America. But this resolution may have unintended consequences. Biden's executive order on Buy American is essentially supposed to direct federal government dollars into American hands and away from foreign ones. Samir Keynes is The Economist trade and globalisation editor. He's listed a few things that he wants to do. So there's this act called the Buy American Act of 1933. And in theory, that gives a preference in, in government procurement contracts to bidders who are using at least 55% American content for most products and 95% content for iron and steel. And so what he's planning to do is say, uh, okay, we want to raise those content requirements. We want to make it harder to get exceptions. If you try to get an exemption, we're going to publish it on our website. There's going to be a, a director, someone who's in charge of, of dealing with those. And he also wants to try and attach those those content requirements to value that, that is somehow associated with American jobs. Now, Samaya, after four years of Donald Trump, Buy American certainly has a familiar ring to it. How does President Biden's new executive order differ from his predecessors? If you look at the details of this, there are some elements that are really a continuation from what Donald Trump did. Under the Trump administration, they raised those content thresholds. It used to be 50%, that went up to 55%, and, and the jump to 95% for iron and steel came from, from 50%. Those changes are actually only going to be implemented in another month or so. So some of them are, are quite fresh. I think the experience of the Trump administration was that they made a lot of announcements and not much changed in practice. Some observers suspect that the changes announced on January 25th may be quite similar. Why is that? Essentially, there's the Buy American Act of 1933, and then there's the Trade Agreements Act of 1979. Uh, You can tell I've had a really thrilling few days becoming a, a legal expert on this. And for large contracts, for large purchases over $182,000, a trade deal kicks in called the Government Procurement Agreement. And under the terms of that, there are 19 other members of this thing that get equal access to these procurement contracts. So if you're a European company, you can import European components and they will be essentially counted as American under the terms of that deal. So the executive order doesn't affect the terms of that international agreement. There was a senior official who said it would be compliant with with a government procurement agreement. And while that's the case, all of those other countries' access is going to be unaffected. And so for smaller contracts, yes, companies will, will find that they have to scrabble around to meet the higher content requirements. But for bigger ones the changes may not be that relevant. Given all this, will the executive order have its intended effect of creating new jobs and stimulating domestic industry? The evidence on whether these measures work is pretty patchy and not very strong. And the basic economics point is that if you, the government, are bidding on on one thing, you are essentially pulling away resources from elsewhere in the economy. Uh, now, that, that's often an argument that you make if, if everything's running at full capacity, which the American economy is absolutely not right now. But the fact remains that, you know, if you're trying to support the steel and aluminium industry and you bid up the price 
place and that that means that there are more jobs in those industries, you might inadvertently make things more expensive for other industries and that could hurt them. And so it was quite striking looking at some of the responses to, to the Trump administration's changes that many of them were unhappy. They, they basically said, look, to comply with these rules, I'm going to have to buy more expensive American components. And that's going to hurt me because it's going to mean that I'm not competitive in the global market. Uh, and so, you know, these measures can have unintended consequences. They can be disruptive. They can create paperwork. You really need to think about the whole economy. And there it's just much less clear. Now, so if its impact is so limited, how should we think about this executive order? Is it the first in a series of actions or is it just a token effort? I suspect that there will be more to come. If there is going to be an infrastructure bill, um, much more federal spending, I suspect they're going to try to attach conditions saying that you have to buy American inputs, those measures will be much less constrained by the government procurement agreement. I think we will see much more you know, industrial policy where the government tries to use the leverage of its spending to influence where certain kinds of production is happening. Now, this is tricky politically. If he, if he doesn't do it, then he is going to open himself up to attack. This was obviously a key campaign pledge of his. If the measures start to have much more of an impact, then you're going to hear trading partners complaining much more loudly and also potentially American companies too. And that is going to be a, a test of whether the Biden administration really is committed to, to working with allies or if he really is trying to fulfill that campaign promise he made. Samaya Keynes, thank you very much. Thank you. For more analysis of President Biden's economic agenda, go to economist.com. This week, as well as our usual coverage of the latest news in business and finance, I highly recommend one piece in particular. It's an extraordinary investigation by my colleagues. They've been digging into the murk surrounding the huge Magnitsky money laundering case, and they've uncovered uncomfortably close links between the Swiss and Russian authorities involved in its prosecution. To read or listen to that and more, subscribe at economist.com slash podcast offer. You'll find the links in the notes for this episode. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The push to buy American is part of Joe Biden's ambitious promise to his country to build back better. But even before the pandemic, many rich countries were struggling to get to grips with the most pressing problems facing them, like inequality and climate change. In a new book, Mission Economy, Mariano Mazzucato argues that what's needed is a new approach, one inspired by the grand alliance of public and private interests that in July 1969 took three men to the moon and back again. Matsukato is a professor at University College London, and she spoke to our free exchange columnist, Ryan Avent, about what it might take to achieve a modern moonshot. We've become wed to this notion, and this is both left and right, that at best, at best, government is there to fix a market failure. So you actually have to wait for markets to fail before you even intervene. 
And I really recommend leaders, and definitely Biden now, to rethink that. What we need is a co-creation and a co-shaping of markets approach, if we care at all about the direction of the economy, not just economic growth. Thinking about the Apollo program, it, it seems to me that U.S. state capacity was quite a bit more developed. The U.S. had just come through the Great Depression, uh, the New Deal, the Second World War, developing state capabilities. And I wonder whether the past sort of half century of erosion of those capacities hasn't made it more difficult to America to undertake these sorts of things. So the reason I wrote the book is that I agree with you. I don't think those capabilities are there. I think the book shouldn't be misunderstood as some sort of glorification of the public sector. As important as those public sector capabilities were, one of the most important capabilities was how to actually engage with the private sector in a symbiotic, mutualistic way, and not, unfortunately, what we have in many sectors today, which is a parasitic <laughs> uh, way of collaborating. So if you look at health innovation in the U.S., there is over $40 billion a year that the National Institutes of Health invest in drug innovation, and yet we somehow then end up uh, misgoverning the patent system, so intellectual property rights, which are too upstream, so the tools for research are privatized. They're too wide because patents are often used for strategic reasons. They're too strong, so it's hard to license. Also, the prices of the drugs don't reflect that public contribution. And in looking back at the Apollo program, what I found so interesting was that the leaders inside NASA were aware of these risks. So there was a whole debate about how to make sure that uh, NASA wasn't captured by what they called brochuremanship. <laughs> Today we would call it PowerPoints if we think about consulting companies sometimes. That was done through a lot of attention at, for example, the contracts that are at the center of any relationship between business and the state. They were designed in such a way to really catalyze and nurture bottom-up experimentation and innovation in the private sector. In the book, the programs that you think ought to take priority do have a huge social component, even climate change, but also if we think about public health, the digital divide. Are we certain that a moonshot approach can handle those sorts of problems when it's not just a matter of working out the engineering difficulties? Absolutely. And that question has been asked, actually, for many years. There's a wonderful book by... Uh, uh, Richard Nelson called The Moon in the Ghetto. Mm -hmm. You know, why is it that we've been able to get to the moon, but we still have extreme and structural inequality? The fact that we can only solve our social problems today around climate, around health, around the digital divide in a collaborative way means that we really need to understand markets themselves as outcomes of how we govern all the different organizations, public and private, but also how they interrelate one to another. The key word is really missions, you know, a mission-oriented approach. And the moon landing is simply an inspiration, but one of the things I do in the book is to say this is not a cut-and-paste exercise. Actually, the problems we have today are much more difficult. Thinking about the, the word mission, physics imposes particular constraints on, on that when you're in the context of the moon. If you're thinking about something like solving climate change, aren't there sort of big social problems related to the equity of outcomes? If we think about migration across borders as a way of, of dealing with climate change, how do you frame the problem in a way that you can get broad buy-in and say, yes, this is the right path forward? Okay. I mean, first of all, what I mean by missions is that missions are a way to transform broad goals like climate change into really concrete targets that then require lots of different sectors to interact to solve. 
So what's interesting, I think, about missions in terms of your question is who decides on what the missions are. And what I argue in the book is that we, unlike the Apollo program, really need to learn also to get lots of different actors involved also in the design phase of, you know, what mission are we even interested in? And I actually feel like that's the bit we least understand. It really requires a lot of empathy, engagement. I think that is where we need to learn what works and what doesn't work globally. And this shouldn't be, you know, some sort of academic preaching exercise. (laughs) I think that's an interesting point, because as I was reading the book, I kept kind of thinking of some, some of the very subtle ways in which features of the economy in the post-war period made it possible for, for the U.S. to uh, to engage in some of these things in ways that might be more challenging now. And to give one example, you know, inequality was much lower then. And so if you were a skilled engineer, there was much less of a, of a trade-off involved when you decided to go work for the public sector. Are we certain that the mission ought to be what comes first rather than a broader process of social reform? Is it not kind of the luxury that comes after you do all the other hard work? I think both things have to happen actually at the same time. And that's why also at the end of the book, I have a chapter on kind of the foundations of a new political economy that I think needs to also be driving this. The question is, how do we you know, also build the trust underlying that? Because people don't just collaborate, you know, and, and think about the common good as an abstract exercise. But when we talk about the U.S. or any country and say, what are the obstacles? We need to remember that billions are spent every year. It's not about spending more. It's absolutely about, you know, spending and actually investing in a different way. So look at industrial strategy, which I know that Biden's team is also really thinking about. So it's really about transforming existing instruments, procurement, industrial strategy, innovation policy to have much more impact. And given that the problems around inequality are so great for the reasons that you said, this approach, I think, is needed more than ever. So listening to you describe the more holistic kind of approach, it seems to me like if we wanted to look for a successful application of some of these ideas, at least today, the place we might direct our attention is China, which is not a perfect encapsulation of what you're talking about. But but certainly there's a, a degree of pulling together public and private resources all in pursuit of some overarching goal. Mm. To what degree does an approach like the one you describe involve looking more like China It's a great question. I think what is happening in China is they are investing astronomically in terms of solving one of their greatest problems, which is pollution. That's actually been going on for some time. And they've learned from the U.S. at the same time that I would argue that the U.S. is unlearning some of its own uh, models of success. So the kind of ARPA-E, DARPA, SBIR, you know, NIH kind of institutions in the U.S. that have been structural foundation of the U.S. success in terms of competitiveness and innovation. But you rightly put your finger on the problem of democracy And the whole point of this book is to say, look, we shouldn't be separating out the kind of social, the technological and the economic. Today, more than ever, we need the missions to be co-designed, co-created as an outcome of business, government, citizens coming together and actually even debating, reinventing some of our fora for democracy. Without that, this is just going to be a top-down process, which at best catalyzes some investment, but doesn't actually also get people to believe again in what government is for and what we can solve together when we put our minds to it. Mariana Mazzucato, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Our thanks to Mariana Mazzucato and to Ryan Avent. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. While you're with us, please take a moment to leave us a rating or better yet, a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Rachna Shanbog, and in London, this is The Economist.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 